Good morning and welcome to Rising. I want to wish a happy anniversary to Brianna. <laughs> I saw I saw your story on Insta and actually my own like reminder too that uh, it was one year ago today that you did your first guest hosting stint in that chair. It's true. I cannot believe how time flied, Robbie. Flew. I can't even come and talk to you. I'm so excited. The point is that I've been having fun. It's been a real pleasure to sit next to you great. for a year now. I can't believe it. It is wild how <laughs> time goes. But I've been doing this for like a year and a half now. <laughs> I still think of it as oh, I just took over from Crystal and Sagar. That was like a long time ago. Yeah. Look, you're putting your own stamp on this. You are You are our elder <laughs> leader oh here. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> yeah, thanks this, a lot. In this only, you're older than me, probably. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into it. What do we have on deck? Well, President Biden is contemplating sending 30 to 50 M1 Abrams tanks to Ukraine, and an announcement could come as soon as this week, according to Politico. The Biden administration had previously argued against sending the Abrams tank, saying they're too expensive and require too much maintenance. Meanwhile, Germany has confirmed it will be sending an initial shipment of 14 Leopard tanks to Ukraine. This comes after weeks of domestic and international pressure to deliver armored vehicles aimed at helping Kyiv regain territory seized by Russia, the New York Times reports. Russia has responded to the tank shipments as a blatant provocation. These developments come just after several senior Ukrainian officials, including the deputy defense minister, resigned amid a crackdown on corruption in the country. Those officials are accused of bribery and leading luxurious lives in wartime. Senior aide said President Volodymyr Zelensky is responding to a key public demand that justice should apply to everyone. So we have potentially more uh, weapons, courtesy of the U.S. taxpayers, arriving in a war zone. Um, I mean, there are many reasonable concerns about this, I think. Um, Will they just end up prolonging the war is one. Again, we need to wrap this up. We need to end this. Two, um, you know, it, we have to worry about weapons falling into the wrong hands or just hands we don't know who ends up with it. Like, all this stuff, not all of it gets blown up. Some of it stays around. And, and you know, we had this experience in the Middle East where we armed people we were temporarily aligned with, and then we're so surprised when they're shooting at us with our own guns or mm-hmm. launching our own rockets at us. Uh, because circumstances changed. And, and I mean, the, the Pentagon is terrible at accounting for this stuff. It, it lost. It loses track of, of billions of dollars in the Middle East. Yeah, what was the what, CBS story that was taken down because it was tracking the enormous uh, sums of money that and, and, and um, support, uh, arm support that were not trackable, were not traceable mm-hmm. uh, to Ukraine? And this inconvenient truth uh, meant that, <laughs> that they had to pull their story from their website when they got pushed back, not because it was wrong again, but just because it was an inconvenient truth. Look, I think that's a perfectly legitimate con- con- concern. It's also concerning to me that the conversation about increasing funding military support, military aid, isn't connected in any way to a conversation about what military goals uh, they hope to achieve that would facilitate an end to the conflict. Mm-hmm. So how it's paired with the negotiations that I hope are still ongoing, but which we hear very little about. So what's the idea that if we are able to reclaim this amount of territory, it has, is, is uh, Ukraine is going to be able to bargain in this way that it can't bargain today or negotiate today? Um, That's such a great point. You know, like, there, there's, there, there's no connection between how long we are going to fight or what the actual territorial goals are or military goals are of the Ukraine. Ukrainians 
to what the what the final resolution of this conflict are going to be. And if that were the case, and if that were more explicit, I think some people who are, I think, rightly concerned about how much money is being spent over there, while Americans are suffering paying more than a minimum wage, an hour minimum wage salary on a carton of eggs, perhaps would be more okay. That's such a it. good point. And we just had Davos, with a lot of discussion of Ukraine, a lot of open-ended commitment to whatever Zelensky wants. You know, right, they didn't gather and say, okay, this is going to be the last shipment of stuff, and these are the war objectives, and then that we're going to press for meetings on this timetable. They don't even say that. They don't even say that and then fail to deliver on that promise. They don't, it, it's amazing that they don't even try to uh, delude people into thinking that the situation is under control. They just say, no, 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 we're just going to, as much money, as much many weapons as it takes for as long as it takes. Right. That's just the reality. Right. It's it's brazen. It's brazen. And and the the U.S. is basically saying so many, you know, senior officials have just said out loud this is about weakening Russia at this point, right? And it's interesting to contrast that rhetoric with rhetoric about Putin and the argument that, oh, well, he's never going to stop. Nothing will satisfy him. He wants to reconstitute the Russian empire and conquer half of Europe. I mean, these are the Mm -hmm. kind of things that people say to justify U.S. support. Well, you know— Putin isn't actually saying that he wants to conquer all of Europe. The West is saying they want to do this to weaken Russia. And I do do think there's a way that reigning in that language and people being more honest and explicit about what their goals are and and having those goals be less than weakening Russia, right, being actually connected to helping Ukraine get to peace, get their their citizenry out of uh, harm's way, establish borders, get, you know, settle Mm -hmm. this conflict, would— Help help the actual the settlement negotiations, but I don't see how you can sit here and say we can't stop the war because Putin's operating in bad faith and just wants to conquer all of Europe. Well, what we see from the West is these explicit statements that say, well, we don't want to settle the war either; we just want to weaken Russia. And at what point does an open-ended, a, a, a no end in sight commitment to weakening Russia and harming the Putin regime? just become war. Uh, yeah. When they describe that Russia's describing the tanks as a provocation. I was reading uh, about American entry into World War I the other day. Mm-hmm. The Lusitania was a Jeopardy answer. <laughs> I watch Jeopardy every day. And you know, the, the, the ship that was sunk by uh, German uh, uh, U-boats that understandably outraged Americans. The, the ship, though, what it was it was in a war zone. Mm-hmm. It was headed to Britain. And actually, in the advertisements on the New York Times, like right next to, like, oh, book your ticket today on the Lusitania, the German a- ambassadors had, like, run a ton of ads right next to it saying, don't get on this boat. We're going to freaking sink it. It's mm-hmm. in a war zone. Mm-hmm. Um, but that drew us in, inevitably, to this conflict because we were trying to conti- carry on. Like, oh, yeah, we're, we're still—and and there were weapons on that ship mm-hmm. for British forces. Mm-hmm. And it became, and eventual, eventually, we ended up joining World War One, getting sucked into this by, you know, trying to ha- have kind of a, a, a middle ground. But we were we were supplying our friends mm-hmm. and et cetera. And then it, it became World War One. Yeah, and th- that is something we have to avoid in this scenario, in which the countries have nuclear weapons, has to be avoided at all costs. Well, and they don't understand the at all cost part of that. Speaking speaking of that. Speaking of that, right. <laughs> yeah. Tell, uh, tell us about the doomsday Speaking of the plot. end of the world, yeah, a panel of international scientists has warned that humanity's existence is at greater risk than ever, especially as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Guardian reports the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists set its doomsday clock at 90 seconds to midnight. 
the closest to midnight the clock has been since it was established in 1947 to illustrate global existential threats at the dawn of the nuclear weapons age. Rachel Bronson, the president of the bulletin, said the clock had been moved forward from 100 seconds to midnight where it had been for the previous three years, quote, largely, though not exclusively, because of the mounting dangers of the war in the Ukraine. I actually have a bone to pick with this thing. I think the doomsday clock is the stupidest thing. <laughs> Why is there that, Because it's, it's utterly unscientific. It, it, it Now, in this narrow case, moving it closer because of the threat of nuclear war because of Russia is perhaps a proper use of the actual thing. But that's like that was its intention. You know, the Cuban Missile Crisis brought us closer to the brink than anything else. But they also they adjust it. I mean, they adjust it for climate change. They adjust it for they're always adjusting it in a kind of like, oh, we're always closer to nuclear annihilation than no, we were we were pretty close during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then there was a long period of not being very close at all. It's not there's nothing scientific about it. There, it's just a, it's just a gimmick. <laughs> wait, it's wait. a gimmick. So is the issue that there's no, you know, precise measurement for yes. how exogenic crisis is and how many seconds get ticked? Yes. Or that there are things that are included in it, like climate change, that aren't about the risk of nuclear conflict? But both. There are the, mostly the former. Um, they, they have no precise measurements for that. They have no precise measurements for it. This is just, it's just a PR stunt. It's just a, oh, pay attention to us kind of thing. It's so stupid. Well, I, I don't know that anyone thinks of it as, you know, science per se. Nobody's, nobody's setting but they, they their clock so, by the doomsday clock. It's such a solemn kind of, oh, we've moved it. Oh, yeah. We're but isn't, really, isn't that the It doesn't reflect the actual have, danger of extinction is, is, humanity in po- most cases. Isn't the point, and why we're talking about it, that it is a more easy-to-understand metric of what the risk level is in the United States of America. I mean, George I think it Bush, doesn't correspond to George, any risk George Bush level. had his color system, right? His, like, do, do you remember that? He had a, like, a, like a rainbow chart of how dangerous things were going yeah. in America. But that was widely mocked, and instead this is treated with, like, oh, very well, yeah, serious. Yeah, I mean, I think they were, they were both designed to heighten fear. Mm-hmm. And if you believe that the fear that Bush was trying to stoke was in bad faith, then you would mock it. If you think that the fear of nuclear threat or environmental threat is real, then you would appreciate this. Also, this is something that's kind of obviously a uh, an optics gag, whereas, whereas George Bush was president of the United States of America and it was driving policy in a more direct way. But still, like I, I think I think the goal underlying goals are the same. And I think you agree we should be afraid very, very afraid, regardless of whether or not you think that this particular clock is a good metric of precisely where we are. I think we should be a little afraid right now, uh, absolutely, but I, I don't think these people should, are to be taken seriously. Just just put it all the way. All right, all right. We'll see it. Robbie see says ratchet it, it up to one second to midnight and see if that kicks us in the, <laughs> in the tuchus. We'll continue to follow the story as it develops. Still coming up on Rising Today, Marianne Williamson joins to discuss Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy's subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. Plus, a former top FBI official in New York has been arrested over his ties to a Russian oligarch. Stay tuned for all of that, as well as my radar coming up next. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie, as it turns out, the healthcare situation in this country is so bad that even Donald Trump realizes that it benefits his presidential chances to come out in defense of, at very least, health care for the elderly. In a campaign ad he issued last week, he warned, quote, under no circumstances should Republicans vote to cut a single penny from Medicare or Social Security. Let's take a listen. Well, we absolutely need to stop Biden's out-of-control spending. The pain should be borne by Washington bureaucrats 
not by hardworking American families and American seniors. The seniors are being absolutely destroyed in the last two years. Cut the hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars going to corrupt foreign countries. Cut the mass releases of illegal aliens that are depleting our social safety net and destroying our country. Cut the left-wing gender programs from our military. Cut the billions being spent on climate extremism. Cut waste, fraud, and abuse everywhere that we can find it, and there's plenty of it. But do not cut the benefits our seniors worked for and paid for their entire lives. Now, you might remember that Donald Trump distinguished himself from the Republican field back in 2016, in part by positioning himself as a defender of Medicare and Social Security against Republicans who sought to cut those programs. Remember when he used to say that he didn't want people dying in the streets from a lack of health care? Well, in fact, Trump's budgets repeatedly proposed huge cuts to Medicare and other life-sustaining social safety net programs. But I will give him credit for at least understanding what DeSantis apparently does not. Americans not only need Medicare to keep from, quote, dying in the street in their old age, they actually love the program. 95% of beneficiaries say they're satisfied with their Medicare Advantage plan, and 93% polled recently by Morning Consult said that protecting funding should be a priority for the Biden administration. 68% said it should be a top priority. This seems like a no-brainer. If you want to win an election, and more importantly, if you want to protect elderly seniors who have worked hard their entire lives in anticipation of receiving this benefit, you need to be focused on health care, and not just for the elderly. An October 2022 poll showed that 39% of voters are either very likely or somewhat likely to cross party lines for lower health care costs. But get this. While Trump is wisely making a bid for health care concerned voters, Biden seems to be thumbing his nose at them, or at least hoping they don't notice that his new chief of staff is deeply implicated in exactly the type of health care fraud that has caused the cost of health care to balloon and millions of Americans to pay more for their care with worse outcomes than anyone else in the developed world. I'm talking about Jeffrey Zients. The previously, uh, previously tasked with overseeing Biden's COVID response plan, the COVID czar will now be taking over Ron Klain's duties as right-hand man to POTUS. And if it wasn't already clear that Joe Biden's allegiance to the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry is stronger than his commitment to the people he was elected to protect, this choice of consigliere speaks volumes. Science has the largest net worth of any Biden administration official, personal wealth, that grew between $10.4 and $28 million in 2020 alone. So how did he gain so much while the rest of the country was in the throes of an economic crisis? Well, via healthcare profiteering. Last year, the American Prospect reported that, quote, over the span of two decades, the healthcare companies Zions controlled, invested in, and helped oversee were forced to pay tens of millions of dollars to settle allegations of Medicare and Medicaid fraud. They have also been accused of surprise billing practices and even medical malpractice. Taken together, an examination of the companies that made Zions rich paints a picture of a man who seized on medical providers as a way to capitalize on the suffering of sick Americans. 
His investment firm was fined $7 million over allegations of fraudulent Medicare and Medicaid billing in 2007. And one of his investment companies, Medesis, the second largest hospice service provider in the country, settled a similar Medicare and Medicaid fraud suit for $150 million a year earlier. Now, I want to be really clear about what his investment companies were doing. According to the DOJ, Medesis billed Medicare for nursing and therapy services that were medically unnecessary or provided to patients who were not homebound and otherwise misrepresented patients' conditions to increase its Medicare payments. And when a whistleblower in the $150 million case tried to report fraud to upper management, she was told to hold off to see whether the government caught the errors. <laughs> in other words, let's see if we can get away with it. The whistleblower later, later had her pay cut and was demoted before they fired her. There's a special place in hell for people who would use the sick and elderly to extract money from the government. Apparently, they also have a special place in the Biden administration. Now, this will come as no surprise to anyone paying attention to, say, policy rather than fear-mongering articles about Bernie bros and snake emojis during the 2020 primary cycle. Joe Biden took more money from the health insurance and pharmaceutical industry than anyone else in the race. And we're all too savvy here on this show to think that they gave him that money for free. Biden immediately scrapped his weak commitments to build on Obamacare with a public option. Instead, he's pursued such progressive health care reforms as continuing Trump's Medicare privatization scheme. As Bronco Marchetich reported last year, the Biden administration has continued to pursue the Direct Contracting Entity Program, also known as ACO Reach, which opens the door to complete privatization of Medicare. The Arizona AMA chapter, American Medical Association, warned that seniors could find themselves subject to an exploitative system that, quote, limits care to provide maximum profit. In other words, they could get caught up in one of the schemes that made Jeff Zients so rich and Americans so sick. Now, Bernie has been reluctant to challenge Biden on his corruption, including with respect to the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry. But he did write an op-ed in Fox News this week, making a more generalized case against corporate greed in the pharmaceutical industry, which has caused U.S. drug prices to be at times 10 times higher than in neighboring or peer countries. Over the past 25 years, Bernie writes, the pharmaceutical industry has spent $8.5 billion on lobbying and over $745 million on campaign contributions to buy politicians. There are now three drug company lobbyists for every member of Congress. Pfizer has donated a million dollars to the Kentucky Republican Party to expand its headquarters there, which are, get this, named after Mitch McConnell. This after Pfizer increased its profits by 140% in 2021 to $22 billion. Let me ask you, did your health care costs go up or down during that same period of excessive profit? Now, Bernie pointed out that the very companies that profited from COVID while enjoying liability shields for harm's caused are now looking to hike prices on the COVID vaccine by 400%. This is after Moderna received $1.7 billion from U.S. taxpayers to research and develop the vaccine in the first place, and after it made $19 billion in profits over the last two years. And it's not just COVID drugs. Bernie points out that Japanese drug manufacturer Estella raised the price of a prostate cancer drug by more than 75 percent 
to nearly $190,000 for the drug. This is a drug that federally funded scientists at UCLA invented in the first place, and which sells for one-sixth of the price in Canada. Over a million Americans rationed insulin last year because they couldn't afford their prescriptions. Meanwhile, drug manufacturer Eli Lilly increased the price by 1,200% since 1996. It costs $8 to produce insulin, but it sells for $275. In Canada, it costs a tenth of what it costs here. Meanwhile, Eli Lilly made $5.6 billion in profits in 2021, and its CEO made $50 million in one year alone. Now, Bernie ends his op-ed by calling on Congress to have the courage to take on the pharmaceutical industry, but he knows they don't because it's not about courage. It's about corruption. And Joe Biden, whom Bernie describes as his good friend, is hardly immune from that corruption. He just appointed a pharmaceutical fraudster to be his right-hand man. And one of the most flagrant shows of fidelity to big pharma you can imagine. And one of the worst parts, the mainstream media will treat this betrayal as less important than some classified documents in Mike Pence's office. And there's not much we can do about it at this point. This is, this is, this is what our priorities are as a country. It doesn't seem like either political party, with the exception of some of these op-eds from, from Bernie Sanders and Independent, are really willing to call out this deep corruption in the pharmaceutical industry. I thought it was very interesting to see Bernie Sanders pen an op-ed for Fox News. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he was very savvy, your old boss, to, <laughs> uh, to frame it in a kind of language that appeals to conservatives at this specific moment in time, because there is a lot of animus in the conservative movement or conservative media toward pharmaceutical companies right now, particularly Pfizer, due to vaccines and vaccine, the idea that vaccines were going to be required of people, that they've you know, failed to fully deliver on the process of what Pfizer said, and, and, and also, to conservatives' credit, touching on some of the corruption there, the partnership between the private sector and the public sector that, as you correctly point out, was tremendously profitable for Pfizer. You know, what did they do? Uh, who have they bought off uh, to to ensure they don't have any real competition for these kinds of things, including for those products? Uh, you, you know, you listed off a bunch of really expensive products that I, I have to guess, I know it's true for insulin. I bet it's true for a lot of the others that don't have... Com- so ideally, in a properly functioning market, you couldn't just raise the price of your drug 200% because you have some competitor right. or a number of competitors who just keep it at the original price, and so you can't sell it for that. But because of the rigorous intellectual patent enforcement that is part of the American legal system and sort of somewhat unique to the American legal system, they can get away with that. That is the case for insulin. I bet it is for a lot of those others. 100%. And to be clear, so many of these drugs were developed in state institutions, publicly funded institutions. And then they turn around, get exclusive rights to them, and jack up profits at the same time that there are people involved in these institutions, people like uh, Zions, who are extracting money from the government for services that aren't actually being provided or aren't medically indicated. I mean, the the grift is all around. And the idea that you would choose somebody with this checkered of political history to be your senior advisor, your chief of staff, is, is outrageous. And I got to say, I happened to be listening to Pod Save America as I was coming into work today. And they were talking about the appointments of, of, of Zions. And they were like, oh, well, there's some pushback from the left about his, about his um, record. But I think that people should be judged on what they do when they're in public office and not about what their careers were before they entered public office. They didn't have the same obligation to the people. 
That's malarkey. That's absolutely ridiculous. The idea that one's entire life experiences of, of working for being a profit generator for the very industries you're now supposed to regulate, oh, that, that you can just siphon off those parts or, or, or cordon off those par- parts of your life like that is so naive that I don't believe that these people could actually believe it. They're just doing anything to run cover for the corruption of the Biden administration, and it's disgusting. Um, not at all surprised to hear that Pod Save, Pod Save America landed on the trust the science <laughs> version of this thing. Uh, thank you so much for that, Brianna. We'll have more Rising right after this. The account of self-described white nationalist and anti-Semite Nick Fuentes has been resuspended after less than 24 hours after being reinstated on Twitter just yesterday. Fuentes was brought back on the platform briefly after being suspended back in July of 2021. Fuentes' brief re-entry back into the Twitter sphere prompted the Republican National Committee to consider an official condemnation of both Fuentes and associate Kanye West, according to reporting from Politico. The high-profile account reinstatement came as Twitter CEO Elon Musk faced criticism from both the left and the right over Intercept reporting that Twitter censored a document that was a documentary that was critical of Indian Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi after concerted pressure from the government of India. Twitter officials reportedly complied with requests by the Indian government to block the sharing of links to a BBC report that was criticizing Modi's role in a series of 2002 anti-Muslim riots. Um, so we'll get to that for sure. Yeah. Start with the Fuentes stuff. So he was unsuspended. He was up for a day. I saw everyone like losing their mind. You know, Elon Musk openly platforming fascists, allowing fascism. Twitter is a fascist uh, site. 24 hours later, Nick Fuentes is gone again. Uh, Nick Fuentes is a hor- horrible human being. His views are absolutely reprehensible. It is not an exaggeration. You know, sometimes everyone on the right is like lazily characterized as some kind of fascist or racist. He endorses actual authoritarian, racist, anti-Semitic views. I mean, you you could see on Tim Pool's show the views that Kanye, after coming under his influence, was like literally endorsing what's so bad with Hitler. Like he said something along those lines. He's denied the Holocaust. Very, very bad dude. Not one with a massive following. So my, my... response or rebuttal to people saying that, like, allowing him on the platform is some endorsement of fact, it's going to be so harmful. Like, if you think that letting his ideas be aired or letting him speak and letting people hear what he has to say will instantly convert, like, tons of people to his message, doesn't that say something very um, fragile, I guess, about non-racism or about about the, the views that most people have. That it, like, we, do we really think it's that seductive and insidious that people en masse will join it if they hear it, and thus we, thus we have to suppress it and stop anyone from hearing it? There are a number of arguments about what direction that cuts in. I think I, I have been of the view historically that deplatforming some of these people causes the same derogatory, hateful communities to fester mm-hmm. in the dark um, and emerge Places in ways like that are Reddit, very destructive. 4chan, Telegram. Which there, is, we, we could list 8,000 different forums. Which is where much of like the Charlottesville organizing yeah. was happening. Um, you know, it's, I think it's different in character, but the 1-6 organizing happened largely off of mainstream platforms on Parler and the like. So it's not that 
it disappears at the same time that there are, there are individuals who make a lot of money from being able to market themselves on social media who have an incentive to become more and more reactionary. Um, and if you take that incentive away because they're no longer having access to that platform, they tend to disappear. And I think this is what happened somewhat in the Milo Yiannopoulos case, although it's complicated by the fact that he was also canceled by his own conservative community. Mm -hmm. He wasn't just that he was taken off of platforms. He was deplatformed even from conservative platforms um, over his views. So I, I, I don't know. I think, it's, I think it's a mixed bag. I do think that a lot of the speech arguments, though, are people mad at underlying bigotry and racism that needs to be addressed more squarely instead of trying to fight these proxy battles over where people can say what. And, you know, figuring out why it is that there are these resurgences of bigoted sentiment at various points of time. And I do think it has something to do with people's sense of economic precarity and the lack of a social safety net and the kind of fear-mongering that you see on certain right-leaning cable news networks that attribute all of the country's problems to the other immigrants and minorities, even when so much of the problem that regular Americans are facing are the same elites that have been running this country since time immemorial. An immigrant didn't make the price of eggs $7 a carton. An immigrant didn't make the price of insulin 10 times more than it was in Canada. An immigrant didn't start or didn't decide to write a blank check to Ukraine. Um, and so, I don't know, I'm mixed. What do you think about it? Yeah, look, I, I think, uh, I mean, I think if he violates the, if, if Twitter has policies against, you know, targeted racial harassment or, or specific extreme ideologies and he violates them, it's fine to take him down. Obviously, they can have whatever policies they yeah. want. But I, I just, I don't have the knee jerk, like, allowing him to speak is so scary because that would mean his ideas are more seductive than the alternative ideas. Um, and and that, that bothers me because I don't think that's the case. I, I think letting him speak, and, and I think most people will then reject what he has to say, whereas if he has to, behind closed doors, say it, we don't even know what he's saying, or if he gets to say, the, the, the truth that I represent is so dangerous, and, so, and if you hear it, you would come into my fold, which is why my enemies have to stop me from speaking. I think that's a, an even more uh, alluring message, particularly, it seems, for uh, young men or, or uh, young people in general, a certain kind of person who gets you know, captured by the Andrew Tates or the whoever. Yeah, well, I, I don't think it's that the message itself is more compelling. I think it's what they're doing with the message and the platform. So people like Nick Fuentes, they're organizing people, connecting folks who share nefarious views or bigoted views, mm -hmm. and then directing them to take certain kinds of action in a way that you, one could argue has a lot of potential for a real world I mean, If they're harm. directing them to take criminal action, uh, this, this is also law enforcement's benefit. There's nothing they like more than having the plots being organized actually on the platforms themselves so they can... So, so, so for example, let's, let's talk specifically about yeah. the kinds of statements he made that got him deplatformed in the first place. Um, this is from a Forbes article at the time. It says he has previously, def def previously defended segregation and denied parts of the Holocaust, though he later said he was joking about his Holocaust comments. Two days before the Capitol riot, Fuentes suggested killing legislators who refused to vote to overturn the 2020 election, which is maybe not so protected free speech, mm -hmm. uh, before walking the idea back. Um, 
his, he quote said, quote, what can you and I do to a state legislature, legislator besides kill them? He said this on his live stream. Um, he said, we should not do that. I'm not advising that. But I mean, what else can you do, right? Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of statements that got him banned, not just from Twitter, but from a lot of other platforms. I think what's interesting here, though, is the choice to bring him back. So and this comes, this relates to the second part of the introductory read, where Musk is getting into hot water for apparently banning this documentary at the behest of, you know, mm-hmm. Indian governmental leadership. Is he being inconsistent with what he says is a complete kind of free speech, absolutist platform when he apparently is releasing the Twitter files saying it's so bad for the U.S. government to be interfering, then being happy to carry water for the Indian government and doing things like letting Fuentes back on and taking him back off without providing any rationale for, one, why he was back on in the first place? And then did he actually violate Twitter's terms in the last 24 hours? Or did Elon just get too much smoke and decide it wasn't worth it? I think that's fair. But here's the issue with the Indian kind of case. I I, I I guess I don't know for sure. I presume that of his own... That Elon it's, does not want to censor that documentary or whatever it is. Sure. But the Indian government, like the Chinese government, mm-hmm. says, hey, you want Twitter to operate in this country? Mm-hmm. This is what you have to do. Mm-hmm. In the face of an explicit government threat to make some, take some action or, or they're not going to allow your company in the, um, the the wrong here is being is the government's action. What they've done is wrong. How the company, whether it's Twitter, whether it's YouTube, whether it's anyone else, how they respond is honestly, I think, a tough call. And and and, and people saying it's easy, I don't think have thought this through enough. Whether it's better, I mean, I thought about this a lot in the Chinese case when China says yes, we would love to have. Uh, YouTube or whatever other social media company here, but videos about Tiananmen Square, none of that. And uh, you know, criti- uh, calling uh, Xi Jinping, uh, making him look like he's Winnie the Pooh. No, we don't want to see any of that. Even though that's really funny. Uh, yeah. What do you do? Are you supposed to say, nope, we do not negotiate with authoritarian governments, so if that's the conditions, no. No YouTube there. Yeah, I, is that better for the people? It, that's hard. I agree it's really that hard. it's hard. The question is... Th- for me, it's it's that that same nuance isn't being brought to the conversation about what's happening in the United States. So Elon does a lot of grandstanding about how, you know, Twitter should never have been the need. There should have never been mm-hmm. any uh, relationship with these FBI people. There's a former FBI person who's working as a legal counsel and all of this stuff, which I agree is untoward. And there's a lot more power that we have as mm-hmm. Americans to push back against that sort of thing. And I think it's right to criticize Twitter for not pushing back when it did. But there's also this discussion. He's created this narrative around free speech absolutism, which, again, you're more empowered to kind of stand by as an as a owner of one of these companies in the United States, at the same time when he's making choices that don't reflect that principle. And at the same time that I'm sure, like, he hasn't opened the Twitter files up to the public, right? He hasn't said, here, look at all of the Twitter documents, because he still has liabilities and exposure, and is probably still being lobbied by people well, this is- in, in the public interest, including lobbied by a lot of advertisers, because a lot of this is not driven by the government. It's driven by the profit-seeking of a business. Well, this is why I've tried to reframe the conversation about all of these files from, here's what Twitter did wrong, and it's Twitter's fault from doing this, to... Here's what the government did wrong yeah. in a- asking them to make this request. Look, it, you know, if you if you put a gu- you know in, in the philosophical example, right? You put a gun to someone's head and they've got the the lever for the train. Whoa, tracks whoa, whoa, Nick Fuentes. 
<laughs> and they got it, and you got to direct the train to you know run over six people or yeah. run over one person. But the one person's like uh, going to invent cancer cure or whatever. Like what you do, it's not really the wrong. Like we, we could debate what the right choice would be, but the wrong is the person who put the gun to your head to make you do something, right, which is which is what India did, which is what China does, which is what sure. the FBI has done in, in not but quite the Nick as Quintes much situation. force. Do we think that Elon woke up and decided, okay, the metrics by which he was banned before are wrong, so he should come back on, and then, oh, I was wrong about that? Or did Fuentes violate the policy in, the, in that short period of time? Or was there still pressure... Yeah, I have no idea. That he bent the need to. I have no idea, and I would certainly agree with you that these decisions should be more transparent yeah. and, and, and honestly more, uh, not have as much to do with Elon Musk personally signing off on yes. each of these things. The, the principles he's articulated can be the framework, but rather than him being the referee and saying, oh yeah, Alex Jones really said something that I think is just too incendiary and I have this personal connection to what he said, so that's no good, but this is fine. That's not a workable framework, so... Yeah. Uh, that, just, a, a, yeah. a task for whoever the new CEO the, the, is, for these sure. These things are hard. I just wish that some of the Elon Musk can do no wrong folks yeah. would have the same amount of, apply the same amount of grace to other folks who have been in this similarly difficult position. That's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Good discussion. We'll have more rising right after this. House Republicans announced members to the select subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government yesterday, including Representatives Jim Jordan as chairman, Daryl Issa, Elise Stefanik, and more. In a statement, Republican Speaker said the uh, Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy said the government has a responsibility to serve the American people, not go after them. Unfortunately, throughout Democrats' one-party rule in Washington, we saw a dangerous pattern of the government being used to target political opponents while they neglected their most basic responsibilities. All this to which Twitter CEO Elon Musk responded, this is important. Here to discuss is 2020 Democratic presidential nominee and acclaimed author Marianne Williamson. Welcome back to the podcast, Marianne. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, I think with maybe a a few exceptions, the broad kind of liberal consensus on this is that it's Republicans not wanting the FBI, these kinds of organizations, to hold Trump and his affiliates accountable for transgressions that um, happened during his term as president of the United States. Obviously, Republicans say that these these institutions have become weaponized for political ends. Um, and it, it's difficult to find many people on the left who will say, well, look, maybe Republicans are self-interested here, but there is a problem with these organizations more broadly. I mean, what do you make of this? Is there a there there? Is, is the platonic ideal of an investigation like this, of a committee like this, a, a net good for America? Well, actually, yes, because government oversight of itself, government making sure that it's working well and working in a just and fair way is an important thing. During the 1970s, the Church Committee that was led by Senator Frank Church of Idaho, himself a former military intelligence officer, a longtime senator on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, someone very qualified to do this, a bipartisan committee that was looking at at serious violations by the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, et cetera, during the 1960s. That was important. So the inherent ideas, you said the platonic ideal of a committee on government oversight is not of itself a bad thing. The problem is that that's not who these people are. Jim Jordan, I'm sorry, he's a partisan hack. This is a man who himself was deemed by the January 6th committee to be a 
quote-unquote significant player in the Trump, uh, the Trump administration effort to overthrow the election. This is not someone who should even be on a committee like this, much less leading it. So I think of this particular one as a revenge committee, even calling it the weaponization of the government. That means you've already concluded that the government was, was weaponized. He said that it's not the role of government in that quote that you just read. He said it's not the role of government to go after its citizens. Well, actually, it is the role of the Justice Department to go after people who are breaking the law. So mm -hmm. if, if, in fact, they find any uh, overreach, then fine. But I have deep suspicions uh, about uh, the motives um, and the intention of this committee, like I said, as evidenced by the fact they're already naming it uh, a committee on the weaponization of government. Yeah, certainly we're hearing a lot of criticisms of these ideas from uh, many mainstream Democrats, mainstream media people. I mean, I do, I do think it's interesting that uh, the kind of normal Democratic consensus ha has very much defaulted to a kind of defense of the state and of these agencies when, I mean, pr progressives, you know, for a long time were known for speaking out against uh, various abuses, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the the FBI spying on, you know, recording JFK or sending threatening messages to Martin Luther King. You know, these are institutions with kind of sordid histories from from both a libertarian and from a progressive standpoint. And now it's it's really, you know, MSNBC and CNN are, are full of commentators who are former law enforcement, former uh, federal agents, and it, it's really, uh, it's really, uh, oh yeah, these are the smart good guys in charge. They're the good guys, and then Republicans think they're the bad guys because they think they're targeting Republicans. I absolutely agree with you that it's, it's very partisan, uh, but it, it's a little partisan both ways because Democrats have become so um, uh, deferential, I think, to these authorities when they weren't necessarily always that way, or at least uh, progressives weren't. Right. They're, they're deferential to them when, in fact, we're in power. So this is the point. You make a very good point. A healthy skepticism about overreach by government should be part of good citizenship. All of us, whether we're on the right or the left, should be concerned, are they going too far? Because they have been known to go too far in both directions. So. Uh, you're right. We should not be arguing in a kind of childish tit-for-tat way. We should be arguing for principle. And the principle is, as you say, the very idea of government oversight of these agencies is not of itself bad. What's bad here is the obvious partisanship uh, and the obvious revenge factor and the obvious uh, fact that they've already concluded that the government was being weaponized. So you're, you're, you're correct. Our political argument should be based on principle, not on personality and not on party alone. I mean, I do think that this is exactly why uh, some months ago when this conversation about whether or not the FBI should be defunded, that was instigated by you know, far-right figures that I have no substantive policy agreement with, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, when that started percolating and there was uh, and this kind of novel, relatively novel interest in that effort among conservatives, I said this is an opportunity for liberals to actually own this conversation and put their imprint on for them to design what they think a good faith investigation into these legitimate issues would actually look like. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, and now we have a, a committee completely by Republican design. And I do think it leaves liberals a little bit flat-footed to say, well, they're just doing it in bad faith, when there hasn't been any commensurate effort, it seems, at least not in recent history, uh, for the left wing of the political sphere in this country to actually right this particular ship. It does, I think, as Robbie says, 
give the give the public appearance of Republicans being concerned about these kinds of um, security state overreaches, while liberals are interested in protecting them, no matter what. I mean, how do you, how you know, what do you think the Democrats or the broad left should be doing to try to reclaim authority? I think not just in this area, but in several <clears throat> other areas of the right seems to have been able to own, including you know issues uh, relating to free free speech, for example, which have somehow become coded in the public sphere as conservative domain? Well, first of all, I agree with both of you. There's an intellectual laziness that has set into the political argument. We treat it like a football game, your team versus my team. The only team we should all be deeply interested in is the U.S. Constitution and the American system of democracy. That's what we should be fighting for all the time, struggling to defend. And and as both of you have said, this sometimes it's the Republicans, sometimes it's the Democrats. Um, we should be concerned. We should be talking about this in terms of reforming the police, in terms of obvious cases of police brutality, in terms of such things as uh, what happened down in Atlanta with the shooting of environmental protesters. That's where those of us on the left should be very, very concerned concerned about overreach by government, situations such as that. So uh, once again, the very idea of holding government accountable, that of itself is inherently fine. All of us need to remember that it's the principle that we are defending. And um, there are times uh, when the government uh, overreach that we're concerned about on the left has to do with things like censorship, <clears throat> has to do with uh, decisions for uh, foreign policy being dictated too much by the defense industry, things like our food policies being being too uh, too dictated by dictated to by big food and big agriculture, the fact that there are pesticides in uh, uh, that there are chemicals and pesticides that harm a child's brain because of policy being dictated to by chemical companies, the fact that there are too many guns on the street because our policy is dictated to by gun manufacturers, fossil fuel extraction because it, our policy is dictated to by big oil, the fact we don't have universal health care because our policies are dictated to by insurance companies, and people in America are flying to Canada and to Mexico. Mexico to get insulin that they can't afford here because the policy is dictated to by big pharma. There are plenty of places where we should be concerned about the government being handmaiden to the forces that hurt us, uh, treat us unjustly, uh, rather than being advocates for the American people. Well, meanwhile, House Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy has responded to questioning over the removal of Democrats Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from the Intelligence Committee. Let's watch that. <clears throat> Let's answer her question. You just raised a question. I'm going to be very clear with you. The Intel Committee is different. You know why? Because what happens in the Intel Committee, you don't know. What happens in the Intel Committee, although the secrets are going on in the world, other members of Congress don't know. What did Adam Schiff do as the chairman of the Intel Committee? What Adam Schiff did, use his power as a chairman and lie to the American public. Even the inspector general said it. When Devin Nunes put out a memo, he said it was false. When we had a laptop, he used it before an election to be politics and say that it was false and said it was the Russians. When he knew different, when he knew the intel, if you talk to um, John Radcliffe, DNI, he came out ahead of time and says there's no intel to prove that, and he used his position as chairman, knowing he has information the rest of America does not, and lied to the American public. When a whistleblower came forward, he said he, he did not know the individual, even though his staff had met with him and set it up. So no, he does not have a right to sit on that. But I will not be like Democrats and play politics with these, where they removed Republicans from committees and all committees. So yes, he can serve on a committee, but he will not serve on intel, because it goes to the national security of America, and I will always put them first, all right? 
And if you want to talk about Swalwell, let's talk about Swalwell, because you have not had the briefing that I had. I had the briefing and Nancy Pelosi had the briefing from the FBI. The FBI never came before this Congress to tell the leadership of this Congress that Eric Swalwell had a problem with a Chinese spy until he served on intel. So it wasn't just us who were concerned about it. The FBI was concerned about putting a member of Congress on the intel committee that has the rights to see things that others don't because of his knowledge and relationship with a Chinese spy. Do you think uh, how McCarthy handled Schiff and Swalwell is just revenge, or, or was there a policy reason to do it? Maybe more so, I think, in the case of Swalwell. We all need to grow up here. The Republicans won the House. He's a Republican Speaker of the House. Um, I don't agree with Kevin McCarthy on pretty much anything, but he is the Speaker of the House now. So on this one, Democrats remove, uh, remove people. On the January 6th committee, uh, they said, no, we're not going to have certain people. We knew we're just going to be there to defend Donald Trump. So some of that, I disagree with him entirely, but it's not like with the, with the quote-unquote weaponization select mm -hmm. committee. Uh, this is He's the Speaker of the House. I don't agree with him. We need to make sure that the Democrats win back the House in two years, but uh, we all need to grow up and realize they won this election. Well, Marianne, you recently announced an exploratory uh, committee to re research whether or not you want to launch a presidential run in 2024. Uh, the left community obviously uh, was really galvanized around a 2016 and then 2020 Bernie run, and it looks like there are not a lot of other people, if any other people at all, uh, in the left who are willing to run. Bernie has said specifically that he's not going to run if Biden is in the race, and all indications thus far are that Biden is going to run, which means establishment figures are inclined to clear out. So many people on the left are wondering about the decision to run within the Democratic Party, given what has happened to Bernie in 2020 and 2016, as opposed to running uh, as a third party or independent candidate. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that decision making, uh, you know, and whether that's part of your exploration at this point? Well, as I've often said, I think everybody should do what their heart leads them to do. So I don't have any judgment of people who say, no, we just have to build up third party voices. Each of us has to follow our own gut. I have perhaps a kind of nostalgic relationship to a Democratic Party of FDR, although I realize uh, Franklin Roosevelt would probably be seen as too left wing uh, by the current Democratic establishment today. You know, it's important for us to remember that democracy is what matters, not political parties. Political parties are not mentioned in the Constitution. Uh, George Washington warned us about them. John Adams said that he thought that they were their, um, the biggest threat to democracy. And the reason George Washington warned us about them was exactly what we're talking about here today. He said people would become more um, loyal to their factions than to their country. So right now, we all know, for the reason you just talked about, the suppression, the obvious suppression of Bernie Sanders' campaign, we know what the DNC does. We know too often there has been the suppression of, of the wider array of voices within the Democratic Party. To me, that's a reason to go there. If I run, clearly, there are forces within the Democratic Party who will be trying to invisibilize me. I think they would have an easier time invisibilizing me um, uh, if I run third party. If I do run, and I run as a Democrat, I will be more inconvenient to the people who need to be inconvenienced. You know, when I was younger, Eugene McCarthy primaried 
uh, J, uh, LBJ and uh, Bobby Kennedy primaried LBJ. Now the DNC says this is why nobody can primary an incumbent Democratic president because when it happens we lose. Excuse me, they killed Bobby Kennedy. So the correlation there should not be seen as causation. And then they use the Teddy Kennedy example as well. This goes back to everything we were talking about earlier. It should be about the democratic process. It should be about voices. Why are the American people offered seven brands of toothpaste, if not more, but only two brands of, of, of uh, a political candidate? This, this operational, almost like, you know, we will do this. You will not primary Biden. I'm not one of them. I'm not part of that machine. I think the American people deserve to have as an option as wide an array of possibilities in terms of the consciousness of the candidate, how the candidate is analyzing what is happening in our country today, what that candidate would do to change those things and to effectuate those things. It should not be about the DNC. It should be about democracy and the American people hearing what options uh, lie before them. So it's, it sounds like you're saying you, you would be willing to primary Joe Biden. Any American should be willing to primary any president that they think uh, could be improved upon if they feel that that presidential administration could be improved upon. Well, Marianne, thank you so much for joining us today. We so appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. More Rising right after these messages. There's heroes and villains in, in sports and entertainment. And I think because of my stance on COVID uh, and maybe some other things, I've been cast as the villain, especially the last few years. If you take the right, the right sound bite from the right thing, you know, and it's, a, and it's a station that may or may not have in the past been brought to you by Pfizer, then they got to make sure that their villain, oh. you know, gets cast in the correct light. Uh, and whether or not they're, you know, sponsored by Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, whatever it might be. What? When you go up against some of those powers that be, you put yourself in the, in the crosshairs, you know, they're going to paint you in a certain way. And that's what the media did to me a couple years ago. That's fine. That's their prerogative. That's what they wanted to do. That was Green Bay Packers star quarterback Aaron Rodgers. In case you forgot, back in 2021, Rodgers infamously told reporters he was immunized when asked whether he was vaccinated against COVID-19. And what happened with him was, and then he got it, he got COVID. And so some people were upset with him because they thought he had implied that he was vaccinated when he said immunized. What he actually meant by that is he was taking uh, uh, products that he thought would improve his health, mm -hmm. um, you know, give him the best possible case for not getting COVID or, or for having an easy bout with COVID, but, did, but not specifically vaccination. Um, and then he was kind of portrayed as like an anti-vax person. And now, of course, we know getting vaccinated doesn't stop you from getting COVID, as even the good in good standing health experts have had to concede. Uh, but he really was, uh, and I, he clearly took it rather personally, but he really was demonized by a lot of, um, by a lot of the media for not supposedly modeling good behavior and just getting vaccinated. Most athletes, um, most NFL athletes did. Uh, so I, I understand why he's upset because it didn't end up stopping you from getting COVID. Yeah, well, he said in this interview that, you know, he doesn't see himself as a victim. It seems like he was able to continue playing on, like, what happened in certain other sports. I know that we covered various international tennis players who weren't allowed Can't to the country here. because they, of their vaccination status. And other leagues, it seems, had more strict requirements for people being vaccinated than apparently the NFL did. So, um, you know, and it looks like he came through his bout of COVID unscathed and all is well that ends well. You know, I, I don't know. I 
I, I understand that a lot of people are very frustrated that they felt stigmatized at a time when it was not acceptable. You could get banned from social media even for saying things about how one's own vaccination status doesn't necessarily prevent, doesn't at all prevent you from getting COVID or doesn't have the same um, preventative effect with respect to spreading COVID. Like, I, I understand all of that. I guess my question is, you know, are we living in a world where we're going to have an interminable amount of COVID identity politics for people who feel aggrieved from that period of time? Because I do feel like a lot of us were collectively misled, um, whether or not you complied or didn't comply. There was a lot of misleading stuff out there that people in good faith got caught up in. And I don't know. I don't even know mm-hmm. how I'm supposed to feel about this. You know, I'm. Uh, t- well, I, I think um, people maybe like Aaron Rodgers or who are in his position, uh, if not him specifically, are feeling a little bit like uh, like it's time for a, a, a turnabout is fair play, that now there is a, a much broader acceptance that the vaccines are not not stopping cases. Uh, maybe the protection is much more short term than the experts promised. Um, and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and it, it's feeling, they're feeling um, like they were really stigmatized, and the people doing that uh, ended up being much more wrong than they thought they would be. And it, it's now is the time for, aha, you, you, know, you made me out to be like some nutcase for being hesitant about this or not thinking it was necessary. Maybe if I'd already had COVID and I didn't want to get jabbed, and you, you, know, you portrayed me, you, you the you know, amorphous, faceless yeah, public ask, health though. bureaucracy. Who, who well, the mainstream it? media. Who is the we specifically? Because, like, if, I think if, it's the mainstream if, media. If the point is that people want some kind of apology from the folks that did stigmatize them, I think that's completely mm-hmm. fair. Or at least some recognition. I think they want they acknowledgement. Were, yeah, some recognition that they were in the wrong. I think that's completely fair. But who, from whom is that mm-hmm. requested or demanded or desired? And I, I would love us to get to a place where we can get that reckoning. Because I, I think those mm-hmm. kinds of reckonings and accountability moments are, are, are in fact, important. But the diffuse kind of, uh, I'm, I, I was marginalized and everyone else is to blame. And I am, I'm, it, it feels a little bit like, I got to say, the frustration that conservatives have historically had with victim, mm-hmm. so-called victim culture where it does seem to be a, like a, a kind of a clout mechanism that people are using oh. now. I was right about this. I mean, and I get it. I completely get it. Like, if you were the one who was the, the uh, squeaky wheel, who had to put up with all of the slings and arrows and maybe even face professional consequences, I understand that you want an apology, you want reckoning, and I think that you should get it. But I think it should be demanded from the people that you want it from, because otherwise we get into this weird, endless cycle of grievance and I'm not sure where it's going because mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff to still be aggrieved about. Other countries are spending so much more time protecting people by inst- installing um, air ventilation systems. We just saw at Davos that all of those rich people who know a lot about, know, mm-hmm. had all the secret information about the vaccine and what it could and couldn't do, all of them used an enormous amount of COVID protections at their conference to protect themselves, not just requiring PCR tests, but having the high-tech air cleaning systems, having UV lights in all of the rooms. And we're not demanding any of that for ourselves, even if you don't want to be vaccinated, all of these other kind of interventions that other- can help keep people safe. It's for the rich, but not for us, while we're still griping about stuff that is now out of our control and no longer long Yeah, It's books. weird what we do and what we not do, right? So we're not doing as much on those fronts. And then on other fronts, we're, we're more militant. Uh, other countries have, like m- many of our 
I think most of our peer countries have dropped the vaccine requirement to come to the country. Canada doesn't have a vaccine requirement to come to the country, and we do. Progressive utopia Canada doesn't have that policy. We yeah. do. Yeah, it's it, true. It it's probably it true in Europe. It's sense. crazy. So, like, I, I'm completely on board. I, like, look, my I, I guess I'm going to distill this point. Mm-hmm. It's not that I have a problem with the grievance. Is that sometimes I worry that being stuck in this point in the past is keeping us from advocating for things that we should mm-hmm. be advocating for going forward and is constructively letting the government off the hook for doing absolutely nothing now. And it wasn't just stigmatization, though. I mean, the the the, the Biden administration did attempt to require millions of workers to get vaccinated. Um, many officials in in many uh, cities attempted to force school children to be vaccinated to go to the school. There was it wasn't just a poo-pooing and people are annoyed sure. that they were looked down. There was actual attempts to make them. And then there was people a lot of, fired. there was people like I mean, Leanna Wen before she had her really, really dramatic and I think praiseworthy turn of, I think when people, important people change their mind into your direction, you should welcome them in. It's a good practice. But people like her, you know, would say things like, well, the unvaccinated, they have a right not to be vaccinated, but they need to stay in their homes. They, we can't have them on public transportation. Like they're lepers or something. And that was, and that, it went pretty far in, in a lot of corners, again, of the mainstream media, of the, the health expert class, the way they were talking about people as unclean yeah. if they were unvaccinated. That was really pretty gross. Yeah. And, 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 is, now, and is, is getting forgotten as we now, as those people accept, and we all accept that, you know, it doesn't, yes. it doesn't matter for public health, really, whether you're vaccinated. The, the debate is about for your own yes. health because and, it's not deterring pe- cases. People should talk about that and people should talk about their evolving opinions and they should talk about why their opinions evolve. Because I do think, I mean, I don't know about Leanna Wynn. She seems to be in a position to be relatively well-informed um, and was in the position of mm-hmm. educating the rest of the public ostensibly about COVID issues. But the rest of us were told for a year, at least, that getting vaccinated very clearly from the highest authorities that getting vaccinated helped bring down transmission rates and that we were doing this to protect other people, not just yourself. That was the rationale that a lot of, that induced a lot of people to adopt a lot mm-hmm. of the stigmatizing attitudes toward people who weren't vaccinated. And that's not to say it was good or people shouldn't feel bad about being that in that position. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's important to focus on who was spreading that yeah. kind of ground but zero. But some people said all along, some people all along said that's not going to be true. It's not. They said, look, look specifically at what the how what the authorization is for. They're not make, actually making any promises yeah. on paper. They might the lofty rhetoric might be saying that. But on paper, they're not making any promises yeah. about cases. So there were people there were people who were on the show. There are people who have been stigmatized. Like, I mean, Alex Berenson, I argued with him and he ended up being right about that. I still disagree with him on other aspects of it. But uh, but people some people did call that right. Yeah. For sure. I just, you know, I, I want the accountability to be demanded from the people mm-hmm. that it would be meaningful from and also for us to be able to do something with this grievous energy because I think it's important and good. I think it's good that the people, uh, what was it, in New York who were all fired for not getting uh, vaccinated got their back pay. I think it's good for people mm-hmm. to get concrete retribution for harms that were actually incurred. But at a certain point, I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to mm-hmm. do with with stories We're like this. We're going to talk, uh, I think, in a little bit uh, to, more about uh, New York um, workers and non-vaccine compliance and what the governor had to say about that. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. And we'll have more rising right after this. Senator Josh Hawley has reintroduced his bill to ban stock trading in Congress. This time, he is calling it the Pelosi Act, Pelosi standing for preventing elected leaders from owning securities and investments. 
This bill would prohibit members of Congress and their spouses from holding or trading individual stocks and would require members found in violation to return their earnings to American taxpayers. Look, Robbie, this just seems like good politics to me. Look, Nancy Pelosi has been asked about this before. She has dodged and given answers that basically show that she thinks that she's above the kind of, you know, uh, Chinese walls that exist for people who work in banking or the law, who aren't allowed to trade on the insider information that comes through their employment, working on these various kinds of cases. And the impunity with which she's behaved, I think, has gotten to the point where it's literally destructive to the interests of the Democratic Party. I mean, take a look at this clip and tell me if you don't think this, this is just excellent politics on the part of Republicans right now. Should members of Congress and their spouses be banned from trading individual stocks while serving in Congress? No, I don't know to the second one. Um, any, uh, we have a responsibility to report in the stock, uh, on the stock, but I don't, I'm not familiar with that five-month review, but if uh, people aren't reporting, they should be. Why yeah. Be because uh, this is a free market and people, we are a free market economy, they should be able to participate in that. Yes, ma'am. Nancy Pelosi asked by a reporter whether or not she thinks her ability to trade stocks and insider information should be curbed. She says, no, it's a free market economy. Now, she got so much pushback for that. She ended up having to back down, and they ostensibly were working on a bill to, to ban stock trading. But as The Intercept reported, I think back in September... There's a lot of indication that the bill was specifically designed to fail in the House. There were discrepancies between it and an earlier bill that basically set up members to say, oh, I object to these discrepancies. And so it got quietly killed. So the Democrats had their chance to have a bite at the apple. Nancy Pelosi thwarted it. And now Josh Hawley's up at bat. I just want to say, and I say this every time we play this clip, I support a free market. It is not free market-y to let the government officials who are making the rules that structure and constrain the free market to engage in stock play themselves. 100%. That is not, that is very different. So she's cynically using the language of free markets there. Uh, but, but, but what am I saying? She's such a historic figure. <laughs> I think it is so kind of Josh Hawley to pay tribute to the legacy of, of <laughs> the first woman speaker, stunning and brave of her, and to, to honor her contributions with a law named after her. What I didn't know, Josh Hawley, feminist. Who knew? <laughs> and and he's just. It's really. It's really wonderful to see this bipartisanship, this recognition of her legacy and her leadership. The Pelosi Act. What a tribute to her this, contribution. This, this is a beautiful. Preventing- How can Democrats oppose this? Do they hate women? Do you hate women, Democrats? <laughs> well, first, first you get um, Hakeem Jeffries doing acrostics, right? That that weird poem, you know, A is for. America and how much I love thee, or whatever the heck he did, <laughs> did during during his little uh, announcement speech during the speakership battle. The Democrats love this. Let's see how they feel about this little bit of a letter and word play. The Preventing Elected Leaders from Owning Securities and Investments Act. I mean, that's 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 some beautiful wordsmithing. Yeah. <laughs> Often those sound very tortured. Right. It doesn't sound tortured. He did a great job with that. Yeah. It's it's almost as though uh, the stars have aligned to try to finally get some justice for for the American people who have been sick and tired of this behavior. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is one of the wealthiest members of Congress, and she hasn't gotten that way from her $175,000 a year salary or whatever it is. And it's disgusting. Because women can do what men do. Girl power. (laughs) 
girl power, okay? There's a special place in hell for women who don't support Other the Pelosi. doing insider trading. <laughs> well, look, I, I do want to say Nancy Pelosi deserves all this criticism. She is hurting the Democratic Party with this kind of messaging, much more so that I, that I would argue than whatever progressive who's fighting for Medicare for all or defund the police or whatever it is that moderate Dems always say are to blame for Democrats um, not doing as well in elections as they would have liked. However, there's a lot of people across the ideological spectrum, including a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans, who want to preserve this mm -hmm. ability to do this. And it's not—it's it's this little sliver of Freedom Caucus Republicans who are advocating for these kind of populist moves, not these parties as a whole. And we should keep that in mind, because it's likely that even the Pelosi Act, as wonderful as it sounds and as much of a winner as it seems— is going to meet some pushback. Yeah. This is one of those issues where it's just elites versus everyone else. Yeah. If you polled people on this, right, left, and in between, everyone say, yes, of course it should be banned. It, you know, there, there are some things that only people in government could possibly support doing. Uh, like eminent domain, if you survey people, like everyone is against it. Only mm -hmm. like government planners who you know want the right to build. Pfizer, I believe it was a new. Uh, that was the eminent domain case. Was mm -hmm. they were bulldozing uh, 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 Kilo's house so they can mm -hmm. build a new Pfizer plant or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Only, only government people think you should be able to do that. Survey people on that, you get universal condemnation. Yeah. Uh, and this this is exactly like that. This is a no-brainer for the American people. And, it, you know, it's an example of, uh, of uh, the elite versus versus everyone else, you know, used to be a very, it, it's it's getting to be more partisan in some ways as the Republicans, maybe you don't think they're doing enough on policy to actually accomplish what they're saying. And I, I think I would agree with that. But rhetorically, they are leaning in hard to that stuff as the Democrats become the, whatever you want to call them, the managerial class. Yeah. Look, are the squad members going to come out in favor of the Pelosi Act? You think it, you think it'd be very easy to do. I am skeptical, but we shall see. Uh, girl boss, <laughs> gaslight. You know, you, you hate women if you if you don't support it. Uh, just a stunning tribute to the legacy. All right. Of a historic woman. Okay, Robbie. Well, I'm arising for you after this. Anyway, so antibodies, antivirals. We think we can also have very early in an ep and epidemic, a thing you can inhale uh, that will mean that you can't be infected, a, a blocker, an inhaled blocker. We also need to fix the three problems with vaccines. The current vaccines are not infection blocking. Uh, they're not broad, so when new variants come up, you lose protection. And they have very short duration, uh, particularly in the people who matter, which are old people. And every one of those things is, is fixable. Uh, in fact, doing that work is going to help vaccinology very, very broadly. That was Microsoft billionaire and philanthropist Bill Gates speaking on the coronavirus mRNA vaccines at, at a Lowry Institute event in Australia. Robbie, uh, what do you make of that? First off, this weird kind of um, glass onion-esque allusion to an inhaler that will block uh, covid Transmission seems oh, right. to be in they the works. Do, they do have that in Glass Onion, yeah. And they're making fun of the idea, I think. Yeah, a little, a little plot device. Uh, yeah, to make sure. sure I mean, if, if such a thing is possible, bring it on. Um, I, I don't know. I haven't heard a lot about that. 
being in the final right. stages of development. But, uh, but the, of course, the main story here is that people are talking about is as Bill Gates kind of um, being open about the, the lower effect, eff efficacy of the mm -hmm. mRNA vaccine. Yeah, I mean, he really nails it on, on the issues that we're having with them, which is the, the short duration of protection, no, uh, not a significant discernible impact on uh, on transmission of cases and, and you know, et cetera, not a, not a massive benefit for a, a lot of otherwise healthy and younger people. Uh, you know, uh, Bill Gates was a major, I think it's fair to say, major proponent of mRNA vaccine technology. He was an investor uh, in BioNTech which developed the, the mRNA vaccine for Pfizer. Um, we were just doing some digging, and we see that he actually sold a lot of those shares at a, how much profit was that? 10x. Uh, so he invested $55 million um, in BioNTech back in 2019, uh, and it's now worth uh, north of 50, $550 million. Uh, He sold uh, some stock, what was it in um, at the end of last year? I believe it was uh, uh, with the share price over three hundred dollars um, a share, which represented a huge gain for him over when he invested. So yeah, he certainly has profited so a great let's, deal. So let's follow that this. trajectory. Buys invest heavily in BioNTech. mRNA vaccines, great. This is the future. This is uh, you know he talked about the vaccine timeline and how you know we could develop it faster. We might have to cut some corners on safety, but it could be developed faster. All in sells it, makes a huge amount of money. Now it's like, yeah, it's, it's a little, it's, it's okay, it could be better, um, but what we really need is, these, is this, this breath spread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you put it like that, Robbie, it doesn't sound I don't mean, I don't mean to sound unreasonable, but yeah. that, that, is the, that is the steps that was taken. That, that, that's what happened. A 2019 investment pre-IPO, okay. a 2021 sell at $300 plus a share, and what some people have identified as a change in tone about the vaccine uh, and its efficacy. Stronger on it when he was more invested in it, weaker on it now, although still encouraging further investments in technology as he is, continues to be invested in BioNTech mm -hmm. as a company to come up with other COVID inter interventions going forward. I mean, the idea of people, I mean, we just, we talked about this in another segment today about um, Nancy Pelosi's stock investments. I mean, people who have any kind of policy role, official or unofficial, the way that um, Bill Gates has, I mean, Bill Gates' sheer wealth puts him in a position to be influential in a policy realm, wrongly, I would argue, but that is the way the world is operating. And for there not to be more interrogation of his conflict of interests here by the mainstream is deeply disturbing. And for people who have been skeptical of this aspect of Pfizer and the drug development around COVID um, and who have been shot down by the mainstream media as kooks, um, anti-vaxxers and the like, when I frankly think that this, this issue of pharmaceutical corruption and people pushing various interventions, um, having an investment in profit, should have been an issue that the left was leading on because um, it's a constructive mm -hmm area of interrogation. Especially when it comes to policy. We have to be more transparent about the fact that people who are having input in, in what the government policy is going to be, what's going to be required of people. The Biden administration tried to require people to get this. Doesn't it, yeah. shouldn't it be known at least when there are hundreds of millions of dollars of, of financial interest at stake for the people advising these decisions? Yes.
I mean, we talked. And about- their tune changes; it follows the money. Yeah. A, f- a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, we had we talked about that story where the new booster. This isn't an argument against boosters, but it's an argument against this new booster that was supposed to offer more protection against the, the current variant. In fact, offered less protection. And then you dig a little deeper, and if the government has paid like what was it five billion dollars for this new booster that wasn't actually more effective mm-hmm. than the booster and that the CDC's not happy for. about that. The CDC, not just yeah, it's exactly. not just all the conspiracy theory kooks out there. The CDC itself exactly is like, wait a minute, you didn't tell us about that. This is a grift. People, these companies are extracting money, taxpayer money, as it were, um, to pay for medical treatments that are not indicated by medical professions and, in fact, are yet less useful than what we already have. At the same time, and I talked about this in my radar, the Biden administration is opening its doors, its revolving doors, to people from these various industries, like Jeff Zients, uh, who is the new uh, um, C- uh, uh, chief of staff for Joe Biden as Ron Claim exits, who has spent his entire career profiting um, at the kinds of uh, companies, investing in these kinds of companies that have been overbilling the government, overcharging the government for Medicare uh, uh, and Medicaid payments and extracting these exact kind of um, overpayments. It is the, an enormous grift and a grift that is incredibly uh, common. Pro- pharmaceutical co- companies have been trying to trick doctors and e- extract overpayments since time immemorial, occasionally they get these taps on the wrist where they have to pay these settlements. But on the whole, they get away with it. And the idea that the Biden administration is now saying, we want one of those guys to be in a senior leadership position here at the White House, it's, it's deeply disturbing. Yeah, it is deeply disturbing. You've got to follow the money a, a little bit. Like, that's not, it's not, I'm not demonization, uh, demonizing people making money or, or, or people investing or any of that. But we need to know about it when it intersects with public policy, with with important pushes to with what you're describing. People connected to the healthcare industry who made who made millions of dollars now running the White House, now advising the president, a, a president who seems like he's someone who can be advised. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> who, who takes advice? Who's at a stage of his life where he li- can listen to the people around him? Yeah, and not to mention the fact that uh, Zions, of course, uh, used to be a Facebook, and that he was the COVID czar. I mean, it's like uh, if you if you connect all the dots to all the position he's been in, it's going to start to form a pentagram. Oh no! It's so pernicious. All of the all of the different pots that he's been in um, are frankly just not pots, not not industries, not sectors that have been. Uh, shall we say, in line with the interests of the American people. We're going to have to have a little seance to get rid of this <laughs> bad stuff. Burn some sage. Is that what the, what the witches and or oh, kids oh, are doing? Oh, yeah. I, I had a good friend in the Bernie headquarters that got in trouble for trying to cleanse the air for burning some sage in the office. You so. heard it here first. That checks out. More rising right after this. Alec Baldwin has been charged with involuntary manslaughter in the onset shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins last year. In a new op-ed in the New York Times, columnist Farad Maju writes that Baldwin's total and immediate cooperation with police without the presence of a lawyer at the time of the incident might be why he's facing charges now, Maju writes. To people unfamiliar with the American uh, criminal justice system, Baldwin's decision sounds reasonable. Something terrible happened and he wanted to help. But defense lawyers I talked to said Baldwin's case should serve as a reminder that if you are involved in a serious incident, it's best not to talk to the police unless you have an attorney present, which is good advice, good advice that more people 
should follow. So he, Baldwin, allowed himself to be interviewed by the police for a long period of time. Even before, he didn't know that Helena Hutchins was dead yet, I believe. Mm-hmm. So he, he's making statements to the police. And, and I think what, what a lot of people wrongly assume is that if you're innocent, well, what could you say to the police that would get you in trouble? And that is the most wrong impulse anyone could ever have. Because if, when you're interviewed by the police, it goes on forever. You're emotional. Um, they, they have so much power as interrogators to, to push you to say things. You can end up saying things that you don't think and are not true because uh, it's how confession works. It feels yeah. good to confess. It feels good to give the police what they want to hear. Yeah. Um, I, we use this tactic as journalists all the mm-hmm. time when you interview someone. They want to feel, give you the, the gaps you're, you're missing. P- and people confess to things they, they didn't do all the time. Uh, and, and not because not because they're like tortured into doing it or they're like waterboarded or something. It's just it's the psychological process that takes place. So he ended up saying that uh, you know all sorts of things that could be used against yeah, him. Yeah, it's, it's also worth noting that apparently he asked the police, "Am I being charged with anything?" They told him no, and I think that probably had a psychological effect on him mm-hmm. and wanting to be you know make disclosures and be right. helpful. And they're but, so good, and they can say it in a way that is totally. Oh, no, we, we, we don't have under any belief that you're being charged with anything. And, and, it, and it could be, frankly, true at the time. Right. You know, but it yeah. doesn't matter. <laughs> They're yeah. still getting statements from you that can be used against you later. So in the New York Times article, one of the kind of admissions that Baldwin apparently made was that um, the, 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 the prop handler, Gutierrez-Reed, apparently handed him the gun and assured him it was safe. She said, do you want to check? This is a quote from Baldwin. She said, do you want to check? And I didn't want to insult her. We never had a problem. I said, I'm good. He told the police that. He told the police that. So there's this, you know, implication that he, you know, she asked him to double check. And this was his Mm -hmm. responsibility, not just as an actor, but as someone who was a producer and and an authority figure on the set, in charge on the set. And he... he was asked to check. He declined to check. He framed it as, well, I didn't want to insult her integrity or her ability or anything like that. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, there's a case for well, contributory and it, negligence. And you use, if you tell the police that, you you lose the ability to talk with an attorney, work through whether this would be good for your case or bad for your case, and then bring it up or not bring it up. Because you've told it to the police, they can, they'll be able to offer it. And people think that... If you say something to the police that that is favorable to your case or that would tend to acquit you, well, then you can use that in trial, which is not true. You, you generally cannot have the police called to, to offer testimony in your defense. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. That's why they say what you say can be used against you can't be used for you. It can yeah. only be used against you. Yeah. The idea, the idea is that you, you might say things intentionally to the police to try to help your case. So those out-of-court statements can't be trusted. It's hearsay. Whereas statements against your own interest can be admissible because what, what are the odds that you want to say something that actually incriminates you? So that's a little evidentiary uh, lesson. But So to that point, later in a, in a later conversation with the police a week later, Baldwin said it was actually the film's first assistant director, a man named Dave Halls, not the prop person who handed them the gun. So now there's this argument that his testimony can't even be trusted because he can't clearly remember what happened. So even something that seems relatively neutral or positive is now 
right. potentially being used to say that he's not a credible witness in the first place. Right, because now prosecution can say, well, he says this, but officer, whoever he is, says that in his conversation with Alec Baldwin, Alec Baldwin made contradictory and conflicting statements about this, so his entire judgment of the incident is called yeah. into question. You don't, were you, were you, you create, lying then or were you lying right. then? Yeah. You create that situation when you talk to the police. If you have something, people will think, well, what if, what if I... I know some, what if I, I, I'm innocent and the police need to know some piece of information that I have? Will you tell that to an attorney and you have the attorney relay that to the police under some agreement that you're not going to be prosecuted, it's off the record, or that it can't be used in a case? There are ways to do it, you just have to talk through it with an attorney. Yeah. That's why you always ask to, you don't, you, you say thank you, but you want to talk to me, police, and you can do so after I've talked with an attorney. Yeah. That's just what you do in all cases. A hundred percent. And it, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about this in the context of someone who is, you know, wealthy and affluent, mm -hmm. privileged and all of these things. So that's not usually the case, but it goes to show that anyone can be caught up in, in these kinds of scenarios. And it, it really just is a hard lesson to learn. And I, and I, I, I want to say not, I believe everyone deserves due process and everyone deserves the benefit of a consultation with an attorney. I, uh, Alec Baldwin might very well be guilty of some very negligent conduct here. It's a horrible thing that happened. We've we heard, oh, there's a lot of good reporting on all the, 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 the bad things that were going on. This armor they were using seems woefully inadequate mm -hmm. uh, to, to the task before her. So I'm not, I'm not saying this because like, I want Alec Baldwin to get off or something, but just these are principles of fairness that everyone has to, has yeah. to, that all people should have in mind if they have to deal with a criminal justice kind of situation. He, he might very well deserve some kind of quite serious punishment right. and given, it, given the negligence he showed. Yeah, and it's worth noting that there apparently was a whole history of labor violations on set as well. I mean, this is a very messy situation and we'll continue to follow it and report mm -hmm. on it as more details come out and also more rising for you right after this. A legal team for former Vice President Mike Pence found a, quote, small number of classified documents inside his Indiana home last week, according to aides. In a letter sent to the National Archives, Pence's attorney said the Trump-era files were, quote, inadvertently boxed and transported to the former Veep's home, and that Pence was unaware of the existence of sensitive or classified documents at his personal residence. Tucker Carlson questioned the timing of the discovery on Fox News last night. Let's watch. Mike Pence, of all people, has just swooped in to save Joe Biden. Yes, Mike Pence, a man so flamboyantly pure he won't have dinner with ladies, not his wife. And yet Mike Pence also had secret documents in his house, just like Joe Biden. Bet you didn't see that coming. It wasn't so long ago that Pence was on television saying he was sure he had no classified documents in his possession. He said that a few times. Then just days ago, Mike Pence sent his personal attorney to search his family's home in Carmel, Indiana for classified documents. Now, if Mike Pence didn't think he had classified documents, why would he send his lawyer to go look for classified documents? We can't say for certain, but it's entirely possible. In fact, it's likely that Mike Pence was asked to do this by federal prosecutors who are trying to build a case against his old boss, Donald Trump. Now, the point would be to show that not every federal official walks off with state secrets Donald Trump was uniquely evil in that regard, as in so many others. See, Mike Pence didn't do it. So if that was the plan, and we suspect that it was, it backfired spectacularly because Mike Pence's lawyer promptly discovered classified documents. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, I'm sorry, but Joe Biden already had 
classified documents. So if the whole point is to try to frame Trump as the only one who would do something this dumb or, or, or this irresponsible, let's say, we, we already know that Joe Biden also has classified documents. So I don't know that it, it, help, it would help the case that much to say, well, Mike Pence followed the rules. We already know that Joe Biden didn't follow the rules. So They all, <laughs> the, the big point, the one that should not be missed is that they all have classified documents because it turns out this is a really stupid crime and a very easy crime. It's not really a crime. It shouldn't be. It's stupid. They all have boxes of documents. I I don't know. I haven't seen them, but my my strong suspicion <laughs> is none of these documents are nuclear secrets. Yeah. They're just they were reflexively marked classified because the government redacts everything. If you ever file FOIAs, they just they redact everything. They don't want you to know what they're doing. Their secrecy inclined, their transparency averse. Everything should be kept from the American public. So everything gets marked classified and it's impossible to keep track of for these people. I don't think I don't think Pence or Biden or even Trump were honestly trying to do anything wrong with this or put national security in any jeopardy. Trump made it a little bit more exciting for, in like from a reality TV star point of view because he refused to give them back right. in a very Trumpy fashion right. that made this into a thing. But everyone who has gotten like tricked into thinking this is a thing has to be has to be distancing themselves a little bit at this point, right? They all have them, and no one—it's—it's it's not a look. I, I don't like the government. I don't like political figures of of both. Of both tribes, I I, I want to get them on technolo- te- uh, technicalities and get them in trouble for violating our civil liberties, which they do routinely. This is, these are just not these are nothing burgers. These are all nothing burgers. That's my standpoint. They're all nothing burgers. Prove me wrong. If it's an important thing, show me the document that was wow. That was really alarming. Sure. That that was in somebody's garage or attic. My prediction: they will never be able to do that yeah. ever. I mean, look, I think this is really an indictment of the gerontocracy, because why do all these people have so many hard copy documents? <laughs> do they not have uh, secure iPads so they can look at some of these e-readers they can look at some of these documents on? I mean, I feel like at this point, there's going to be a bunch of Halloween costumes this year where it's like uh, the clown pulling the scarves out. That's classified documents. <laughs> like the, the CVS <laughs> receipt. That's a good costume. The uh, Yeah, I saw, I retweeted someone who said that should be, uh, like, could be AOC's next dress for the Met Gala, just like documents. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, but, but here's here's something I have noticed. Liberals, I think, have now pivoted to, oh, this is all a nothing burger. This is so silly. But they also are are making the point that you just made that the one difference that does stand out here is that Donald Trump was apparently fighting this tooth and nail to the end, and that's why his yeah. his documents got an FBI raid, where everyone else, including Mike Pence, Republican and Democrats alike, everyone who isn't Donald Trump, has been complying. And I see that some conservative commentators continue to bristle whenever that distinction is brought up, pretending this is a distinction without a difference. You know, do you think there's a, it, it's meaningful to keep pressing that point? I mean, it, how, how Trump handled this was very silly. He, he's done, he, silly is the word I'm using because I don't think there's anything at Why stake. Do you think he I did don't it? think it's a national security issue at all. I mean, but let's move that just a little bit. Okay. If there's nothing at stake, why on earth would Donald Trump put his foot down and be so obstinate? He's a combative person. He he liked the memo, the, the mementos. I don't know. He wanted to hang him up in Mar-a-Lago. I don't know. He can't have really some care. non-classified memento, mementos steal some China no, from the probably Jacqueline they're Kennedy all room. classified because the government needs <laughs> classifies everything. Uh, he can't steal a lamp, a, a rug, a piece of art. I don't know if he took those things too. I don't know. <laughs> on Monday, hosts of ABC's The View reacted to what exactly what we're describing. Uh, the reporting that more classified documents were found at Biden's Delaware home, and here's how Whoopi Goldberg defended him. 
-hmm. presidents and vice presidents can declassify these, not with their brains. There is, you have to go, there is something that you go through before it's declassified. But uh, this order came, it was expanded right after that uh, George Bush put it into place because George Bush made it so presidents could declassify. Obama stretched it to make it uh, vice presidents. So given, I wish they would say all that while they're explaining what's going on because if you say, you know, a classified document, yeah. everybody goes, oh my God, yeah. how dare he keep that? And if these guys can declassify, presidents and vice presidents can declassify, are we chasing our tail with some of this? However, Goldberg didn't get very far before co-host Alyssa Farah jumped in and said this. That's a very good point, but I think it, it has to be true for Trump and for Biden. So if for, for President Biden to be able to declassify something, there has to be evidence he did, in fact, declassify it, which is the thing that Trump's trying to argue. I declassified it. Right, well, there's he no says evidence. He did it with his head. He, he didn't go through the, the process. He'd say he did with his mind. But is Biden saying he even did I don't think Biden's saying no, that yet. And I think yeah. what I'm frustrated by is, I, is how kind of brazen and dismissive President Biden has been of this, because he said it went from, you know, anyone could be irresponsible, but I have no regrets, there's no there there to, oh, but it was locked up next to my Corvette. I mean, this, as you said, is a very serious matter. Alyssa's 100% right. Yeah, but is it a serious matter? Well, Except no. for that part. Well, it's, it's that, but it's, She's totally they, right about the box. Li yes. li liberals made this into a serious matter. Yes. Biden made this into a serious matter when he said, it's the most serious matter in all of the world that Donald Trump did this. Cut to a month no, later, right. and he's done the exact same thing. And, and, but the and, thing we're talking about is probably like a grocery list. And I can't get past that fact. I know, but that's, that's part of why this is so frustrating. It's a weird own goal for... Democrats. It's the same. It's, it, really, it reminds me of what's going on with this, um, you know, new church committee to investigate the weaponization of the FBI or whatever. There are opportunities. It, it, there are opportunities to gain credibility with an audience that doesn't already like you or has reason to hate you. There are opportunities to say, you know what, there's a little bit of truth, there's, or maybe there's a lot of truth in what your underlying concerns are. Yeah, it is true that the IRS targets poor people. Yeah, it is true that the, these uh, intelligence agencies have been weaponized and have done bad things in the past. You know, show, let me show some grace and see if I can work toward you on those kinds of issues where we have agreement. Let me show some grace when we know that Donald Trump has done something that isn't actually that aberrant, taking the documents, and focus at least, at least focus the criticism on he should have given them back instead of these broad statements about how deeply irresponsible it was for the classified documents to be in his possession to begin with. But instead of the, taking those opportunities to seem like they are neutral, legitimate, just trying to get to the bottom mm -hmm. of truth and acting in the best interest of the American citizens, Democrats repeatedly overplay their hand. And I'm sorry to bring them up again, but like, there's a reason why people look at a figure like Bernie Sanders and have such high praise for him, and he polls so well, despite being on the fringe of American politics in a lot of ways, and it's because he's perceived to be a good faith actor. He doesn't take opportunities like this to grandstand and grind the other side just for partisan reasons. And Alyssa's completely right. They took a story that wasn't a big deal and transformed it into another example of how liberals are partisan hacks, and it justifies something like the uh, committee to investigate the weaponization of the deep state. I remember in one, uh, one debate, one of the Democratic primary debates, 
Bernie Sanders saying, uh, being asked about the Hillary Clinton emails thing and just like kind of rolling his eyes and saying, I, for one, have heard enough about <laughs> about Secretary Clinton's emails. Yeah. And uh, it, it was a good line. Yeah, I mean, like, I remember feeling similar. Some, some people time. wish they had pushed, he had actually pushed her kind of hard on that and won the won the primary. Yeah. But you know, yeah, it's, it's that kind of grace that makes him esteemed. I don't yeah. know. Well, meanwhile, over at MSNBC, Morning Joe host Joe Scarborough let loose on President Biden over the scandal. Let's watch. And as far as a classified document, my God, if somebody tried to hand me a classified document going out of a skip, I'd like I'd, go, I'd, I'd put my hands up in there and let it drop on the floor. You are taught. We don't know what is you it. are taught. No, no. This is a cultural thing. It just is. You are taught to treat classified documents in a certain way. And so that's why Durbin is responding the way Durbin's responding and why a lot of people are shocked by it. And you're just going like this? No, no, no. no, no. It's just as bad. I agree. It's just as bad if a Democrat's doing it as a Republican's doing it. Now, listen, you look to intent and the intent for Donald Trump, obviously far worse with Joe Biden, based on what we know. It was just sloppy. But man, it was sloppy with America's classified information. Incredibly, why are there so many classified it's documents? Yo, it's incredibly at, at the Penn Center. Why are there classified documents talking. in his garage? Why are there classified documents in his home? It's incredibly sloppy. It's unforgivable in a certain sense. I do not believe he's been diminished by this. He's been deeply embarrassed by this. Uh, we don't know who packed those boxes, but you know what it is. Even leaving Why, Congress. Mike, Mike, can I ask you this? Why yeah. don't we know that? He needs to come out. That was... That was, look, I have to say, extremely ignorant. I'm like, well, well if, if I was handed a classified document, I, I wouldn't touch it. Like, I'd play, play Flores Lava with it. Like, what? The, the point, they're all, there's too many classified documents, and things get misplaced. And, and, and he's saying, well, this is an unforgivable sin. You know what this is? This is faux centrism. This is trying to sound fair and moderate and balanced because they're, you know, they're always railing against Republicans. Well, here's an opportunity to prove, but we're even-handed because we're going to rail against Biden for this. But there are plenty of things you could rail against Biden for, for his failures on numerous fronts. But they don't he touch the those. Crime bill. <laughs> like, don't I touch have those. never heard any of these individuals as angry about Biden writing the crime bill or eulogizing a segregationist or any of the myriad terrible things he's done in his long career as they are about him touching a, a classified document. Now, I will say, I, I agree with you mostly, but for context, they were talking about Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin, who said that Joe Biden had lost the, quote, high ground in this political back and forth. And I think that Dick Durbin is right about that. Biden has lost the high ground. He's lost his in ability to grandstand. In the context of railing stand. against Trump and saying no one would do this. Exactly, exactly. But I agree with you. High ground over what? This is ridiculous. Americans can barely afford groceries. We're in uh, with the, the doomsday clock is 90 seconds <laughs> to midnight. Come on, people. Let's preserve some of this anger for things that actually uh, affect the material lives of the American throw people. Throw eggs at these commentators that <laughs> said we can't spare them anymore because of Joe Biden's policies. When I was a kid, I saw it to me. When I was a kid, we had, we were, we had it so good that we could we used eggs and toilet paper to throw at our enemies. <laughs> That's great. All right. Uh, we'll have more rising after this. Hopefully we don't find any boxes of classified papers in our garages. <laughs> See you later.
New York Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul commented on whether or not she will rehire staffers that were fired during a since-repealed vaccine mandate. Let's watch. Our healthcare systems seem in desperate need of staff right now. Uh, we've had ambulances waiting five hours at our local emergency rooms to unload patients. The hospitals, the nursing homes say they're waiting for DOH guidance on whether they can hire any of those workers back. What's the latest with that? Well, we're considering all our options with respect to the litigation, so I can't comment on that. But I'll say that last year in my state of the state, we put forth a plan to help retention, also recruitment. And a lot of those programs are just unfolding out $20 billion to bring back the health care system, including bonuses for existing workers, helping settle nursing strikes, which I get very involved in to make sure that uh, patients are being cared for. It's a problem, but I don't think the answer is to make, have someone who comes in who's sick be exposed to someone who can give them the coronavirus, uh, give them COVID-19. I don't know that that's the right answer. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. So we're exploring our options, but I think everybody who goes into a healthcare facility or a nursing home should have the assurance and their family members should know that we have taken all steps to protect the public health. And that includes making sure those who come in contact with them at their time of most vulnerability, when they are sick or elderly, will not pass on the virus. We lost 34 New Yorkers yesterday. We have 4,000 active cases. This has not gone away as much as we wish it would. Couldn't there be other safety precautions, masking, other other mechanisms in order to allow some of them back in? I mean, we're at crisis level here in our hospitals, I in particular our nursing homes. I, I truly understand the challenge and the balance, and these are never easy decisions. But I cannot put people into harm's way, because when you go into a healthcare facility, you expect that you're not going to come out sicker than you went in. Well, she's saying it makes no sense, though, because no. the, the and, and she started to falter as she was saying it, I think realizing that what she was saying didn't make sense because the vaccine does not, I've said it a million times, said it a million and one times, does not stop you from passing on the virus. You, you can be vaccinated and contract COVID and infect someone else. Um, if she's really, I understand that that senior citizens, the most vulnerable people, maybe need a special protection. So that would lead, I, I think, if you were following through that, that would lead you to say something like, maybe we need more regular testing, testing. for the people. Yes. Interacting. But the the test tells you with with better with with greater certainty than when you're vaccinated. The vaccine doesn't it doesn't mean that. Yeah, that was it means maybe the people the, the 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 nursing home people ought to be vaccinated for their own good. I still wouldn't require it, uh, but not the people handling them. Whether those people are vaccinated doesn't have anything to do with whether they're going to pass on COVID. Yeah, it was a great follow up question sense. from the reporter there who followed up saying, "Well, if that's your goal, what about masking?" I wish she had also said, "What about testing?" Kathy Hochul, I have no idea what she's talking about. This is a mindset from two years ago. It's it, it's really bizarre. Um, and it is especially kind of craven for her to be making these arguments in the backdrop of the nursing home scandal that mm -hmm. basically put her in the position to even be <laughs> governor of New York um, to try to kind of exploit sensitivities perhaps around um, special care for the elderly to continue to marginalize healthcare workers who were caught up in a policy that didn't make a lot of sense. Do I think they should, you know, consider getting vaccinated for their own well-being so that if they do contract COVID because they're in a healthcare setting, they're not more likely to be hospitalized and all these things? Sure. But people can assess their own risk. Maybe they recently had COVID. Maybe, you know, they have, you know, they're young and not a particularly high risk group of being hospitalized in the first instance. And the idea that in the middle of a healthcare crisis, 
In the middle of COVID, when 15 million people lost their health insurance because they lost their jobs, you would be thinking about these healthcare providers who lost their jobs because they didn't conform to this policy and treat them like you know, rats carrying the plague, uh, as opposed to following the policy advice that we now understand. It's, 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 it's very difficult. It's incompetent. Head, it's incompetent governance by the head of this, by, by the, the chief executive of this state that, to your point, had a huge problem with how people in nursing homes were treated, leading to catastrophic death that the former governor uh, had a hand in causing and then tried to cover up his right. role. So in, in order to, to toot his own horn about the great job he did, it was disgusting. Right. So right. She, she, she should pay extra attention to this issue. What she's saying is just wrong. Everyone knows right. what she's saying is wrong. Also, she is someone who has kind of courted a more skeptical, COVID audience by issuing those much maligned uh, ads in the subway saying, oh, you can wear your mask up, you can wear your mask mm-hmm. down, you can do whatever you want. And I know we feel differently about masking, but if we're talking about actually preventing the spread of COVID, like, and we're comparing vaccinations to masking, sure. to, to weirdly, to weirdly to stand your ground on wanting people who didn't want to get vaccinated to stay unemployed, or not, or not come back to work, absolutely. but to be like, oh, everyone take your mask off on the subway. It makes absolutely. it makes absolutely no Doesn't sense. Make any sense? Doesn't make any sense at all. Hmm. But yeah. in, in other mandate news, House GOP freshmen boycotted a White House event in protest of the COVID nineteen protocols required for attendance this week. The event was a reception for freshman House members. Uh, Representative Nick Lalota of New York said he declined the invitation because members are required to produce a negative COVID test 24 hours in advance and present other proof of vaccination or masking up and social distancing. Axios said this is an example of the broad Republican effort to have the administration's policies reflect President Biden's statement in September that the pandemic is over. I mean, turnabout is fair play. Biden did say the pandemic is over. A lot of people pushed back and thought that was a mistake. You heard Kathy Hochul in that initial segment kind of tiptoe around it saying uh, the pandemic isn't as over as we'd hope it was, seemingly, seeming to realize like halfway through her sentence that she's talking about all these people who are still dying. Right. She's going to use that in order to excuse not changing this policy. Right. She should change. But she knows that Biden's other yeah. pandemic is over. So and otherwise she's operating as if it is over. <laughs> exactly. Look, if Republicans don't want to go to this event because they don't want to follow this protocol, I think that's perfectly fair and fine and they shouldn't do it. Um, you know, look, I know we feel differently about masking. I think it's perfectly legitimate for people throwing an event to say that they want to maximize safety protocols. All of Congress is like 70, you know, is in a risk risk category because of their age. Basically, almost everybody um, in That's Congress. That's a problem in and of itself. It, it is. And, and it's. I think it's legitimate for people to want to maximize safety precautions in, in, a, in a private event like this. If Republicans don't want to go, they don't want to go. I think that, you know, testing is a relatively minimal mm-hmm. kind of compliance measure. You don't, you know, if you don't want to mask, test. If you don't want to test, mask. But to basically say, unless it's laissez-faire, I don't want to go, I mean, okay, but you don't have to go. You, I guess you're not going to go. I don't know. What do you think? I certainly prefer testing to, I, I've always said that, I, I, I don't find testing very invasive compared to the other things. I really, <laughs> I've made clear, I, I don't enjoy wearing masks personally. I don't care if other people do. I don't want to wear them, and uh, I, I would seriously consider not going to an event if, they, if I was going to be made to wear a mask. I personally wouldn't care. They wanted me to get tested. If other people feel differently, that's fine. Then they don't have to go. And I wonder how much, it does feel a little performative because I wonder what other kinds of, 
I wonder what COVID protocols are still going on at the White House. Do you have any idea? Are they still all regularly tested? They don't seem to, I don't think they mask yeah. with any regularity. I mean, I think the hypocrisy of it is a problem. But also, like, and they're what, whatever socializing you do, and doing, I mean, we know that's going on for, for all of our sure, political people. But I'm a, little, I'm a little conflicted on that because I do think that there are times where you make calculated risks for yourself. Mm-hmm. Just because, let's say, you got married in the last two years and, you, you know, you don't want to wear a mask at the altar and someone gets a picture of you like not wearing a mask at the altar doesn't mean that you should be forced to you know go to a, a, a Super Bowl game mm-hmm. unmasked in a, in a crowd of thousands of people do you know what I mean like you can make you can you can take the risk for the things that are important to you and hope that the risk is minimized in other lower stakes situations and it's, it's true on the other end right Democrats who still think that it's too risky to go to this event can also choose not to go to this event or stay masked the whole time. Um, I don't know if there's snacks and drinks, but they can just put them in their pocketbook and eat them when they get home, uh, which is a strategy that well, I If there are no them. drinks, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Except, although I'm doing dry January, and I've made it uh, almost for the whole month now. Has so. it been hard? It actually hasn't been that hard. Um, good, good. So, <laughs> I know people are like, you're, I can't believe you're not struggling with this. I'm like, no, I'm not struggling with it. It's not that hard. Good, good for you for I recommend I it to everyone. I quit if I want it. It's actually true. And you've been, uh, you've been going to the gym every day. I haven't, I haven't missed a day since I think the, uh, the uh, Christmas time is when Very I started good. this, actually. Very good. Yeah. Well, we're, we're doing self-improvement in 2023. <laughs> uh, one more note on that, uh, that, that event for incoming members. I understand that George Santos did not attend. He had, says he had other things to do. Yeah, I heard that they couldn't te- that they couldn't trust if he actually tested or not. What he said, he tested. I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's been a lot of great George Santos news all over. The mainstream is obsessed with this story, yeah. so you can go there if you want to hear more about it. For us on Rising, that does it for today. Tomorrow, Reason Magazine's Liz Wolf will be back, and we'll get into some of the biggest news going on with her. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go. We are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care.